The Siege of New Hampshire series by McRowland. Book Two Siege Fall. Hi, listeners. Before we get into Chapter 16, I wanted to let you know that I've been working on Book 6 in the series, picking up the story from where it left off at the end of Book 5, Critical Spring. I've started posting notes about Book 6 as bonus for my Siege Club members at my Buy Me a Coffee site. Recently, I've been posting chapters of what was supposed to be a character sketch, or a short story, but it's becoming more of a novelette, telling the backstory of one of the new characters in Book 6. I'll be posting other material to the Siege Club site as Book 6 develops. Okay, now on with Chapter 16. Chapter 16. Recalculating. There should be plenty of room for the three of you in here, Martin swung the bedroom door wide. We can rig up something better than a sleeping bag on the floor for Lucas. This is very nice already said Carlos. Do not go to extra troubles. Thank you very much, Mr. Martin. We will work hard. You will see. I'm not worried, Martin said with a chuckle. Margaret, do we still have that inflatable camp pad? Yes, it's on the metal shelves in the garage, she said. Why don't you come help me find it? You just said you knew. He began, but stopped. He knew that look. Oh, uh, yeah. I'll give you a hand. The top three drawers of the dresser are empty, Carlos. Feel free to put your things in there. Uh, we'll be back in a bit. Martin was both dreading and looking forward to some talk time with Margaret. Once the door to the garage clicked shut behind them, she turned. Okay, Martin, what's going on? Nothing. We told Landers we'd take somebody in, he said. And we did. I just changed who. Yes, and I would have appreciated you consulting me on something like that. But I mean, what's going on with you? Ever since that trip to Canterbury, you've been acting, well, not like yourself. This isn't about that silly gun trade, either. Well, you know, these are stressful times, Martin said, looking at the floor. The outage, the shortages. That's not it, she interrupted. I mean, the way you blew up at the Dunnans and threw them out. I've never seen you like that. Well, I've never caught a guy trying to schmooze you before. I don't have to stand quietly by while some guy... Okay, okay. Margaret held up her palms to quell the flood. I can appreciate that. And part of me is kind of flattered at you turning all jealous Neanderthal. But still, part of me was kind of frightened. You've always been my stable, reliable, solid... You're describing a rock. Rocks are boring. Not boring, she countered. Stable. That means a lot to me. Remember that time that we got stuck in that elevator? Total darkness. And that one guy was starting to panic. So you gave him a glow stick. It was supposed to go in my truck, but I forgot to take it out of my bag. Whatever. You kept talking softly about nothing in particular, and he calmed down. He even did pretty good at twenty questions. All that proves is that boring can be calming, Martin said. Pfft. Margaret rolled her eyes. Then what about that time when we were staying at that bed and breakfast in Vermont for our anniversary, huh? In the middle of the night, we woke up with smoke in our room. Everyone else was frantically bumbling around in the dark, wondering who to call or where the fire exits were. But you went calmly from room to room, looking for the source. Martin shrugged. It wasn't the smoke of a structure fire, no stink of burning paint or rubber, just wood smoke. 
That's all it was, too. A log rolled out of somebody's fireplace in the night. The smoke wasn't going up the chimney. It wasn't a crisis. That's my point, Martin. Everyone else thought it was a crisis. When other people are freaking out and panicking, you don't. That's my Martin. But ever since Canterbury, you haven't been yourself. Martin let out a long sigh. I know. But I don't really understand it myself. Was he really angry at Eric? Or angry at himself for being angry? That made no sense. Maybe it was just that whole ambush thing, he offered. You know, all that shooting. That's not it either, she said flatly. You were acting strange before that happened. None of this is like I figured, he said. I used to imagine that if the power went out for a long time, that it would be just you and me. We'd get by. We'd melt snow if we had to. We'd get by on jerky, wheat mush, and fires only once a day if we had to. But we'd beat it. Margaret smiled sympathetically. But it isn't just you and me, he continued. The house is full of people. We don't have enough supplies for everyone to last all winter. That's got me all tied up. People like the Dunnans were just too much trouble. She was bad enough, but I don't have to put up with his. She squeezed his arm to interrupt. I know, Martin, I know. But it was nothing serious. You don't think I was seriously charmed by him, do you? Martin hung his head. Part of him worried that she did enjoy being fond over. The past many years of marriage could be described as well-managed or organized, but not particularly full of fawning. You were laughing, he said. You don't laugh much these days. Margaret chuckled. <laughs> yes, but more at him than he imagined. Young men do incredibly stupid things sometimes. His skiing adventures sounded more like a narrow escape from Darwinism to me and a whole lot of pointless work. It's hard not to laugh at stupid. I wasn't charmed by him, she continued. Being lied to is not charming. I knew he was just buttering me up as a ploy to wheedle some extra food. Still, I think he was right that you and I don't talk enough. We're busy, especially now, she said. Things need to get done. There isn't a lot of time for talking. Should we be that busy? Well, maybe not, but in our current situation, we are. Here's that inflatable pad. You take it up to Carlos and Anna. With Lucas, we have one more to feed. I've got to do some recalculating at the pantry. Okay, Martin said. The air mattress works fine. Uh, what's with all the papers? How much recalculating of the food supply will it take? Margaret sat at the table with her papers and books arrayed around her. I needed to do a review and rebalancing anyhow. Lucas might be small, but young boys tend to eat as much as an adult anyhow. Eight will use things up faster than seven. I'm trying to figure out how much faster. What's with all the cans and boxes all over the counters? Margaret didn't look up. Refreshing the inventory, too. Martin spotted an odd little can among the familiar cans of veggies. Hominy. It was one of the few cans that Susan got from their last grocery run. Susan. She had come a long way since that first day in Cheshire. She had been through a lot just to get up to New Hampshire. He could almost hear her saying, Yeah, he shook his head vigorously. He needed to think of other things. He focused on the little can in his hands. Oh, what the heck is hominy? From the picture on the can, they look kind of like a bean thing. No, it's a corn thing, said Margaret. Martin mumbled to himself. <laughs> Funny-looking corn. 
He carried the can to his office. He forgot to knock. Oh, Martin, Susan said with a pleasant surprise. Whoops, uh, sorry, he said, avoiding her eyes. I, I should have knocked. That's okay, because I kind of wanted to. Uh, I just came in to get a book. She sounded like she wanted to talk, but he was not ready for that. When he allowed himself to think about her, his thoughts quickly became like three fat hens trying to get through the same small coop door at the same time. His anger had proven to him that he was deep inside foreign territory. He wanted to get back to familiar territory. Talking with her, at that moment, wouldn't help that plan. Ah, uh, here's the book. Sorry to disturb you. Uh, I'll be going now. But... Martin pulled the door shut behind him. He blew out a sigh and shook his head to chase away those three fat hens. He would have to be more careful in the future. He pulled out the chair opposite Margaret. His book was one of the encyclopedias that he bought when Dustin was two years old. It seemed like a great idea at the time, a tool for future homework, reports, projects. By the time the kids were in school, however, Google had rendered the encyclopedia set a quaint anachronism. The eight-track tape of information systems. Martin used it more than they ever did. Even so, it was a set of books that would never wear out. Homestead, homing, hominid, hominy. Hmm. A corn dish traditionally prepared by boiling the corn in a dilute lye solution made from wood ash leachings until the hulls could easily be removed by hand, flushed away with running water. Hmm. Wood ash is still often employed in this process to impart calcium to the kernels. Uh, ever made hominy? he asked. No, never cooked with it either. Hmm. Martin had plenty of wood ash in the bin. He had those two bags of feed corn he planned to coarse grind and to scratch for the chickens. Making hominy seemed like an experiment worth indulging in. The caustic nature of lye meant that he should use one of the stainless steel pots. He sorted out a cup of whole kernels, sifted out a cup of wood ashes. Would the little black bits matter? Yeah, he had no idea. He added a cup of water and stirred. One to one to one seemed like it would be a handy ratio, but he had no idea if it was right or not. What are you doing? Margaret asked. Oh, hopefully making hominy, but it looks more like molten mud, he said. The wet ash stirred like mud. Really? That looks disgusting. Hmm, it kind of does. I guess it needs more water. The book did say dilute lye solution. Looks like I need to add some more dilute, I think. The added water turned the mud into gray soup. The hard corn rattled and scraped on the pot as he stirred. How long does this take? Margaret asked. No idea. I'm figuring this out as I go. The book just said boiled, and that the hulls would be rubbed off by hand. Guess it needs to go a while. Give it a stir now and then. I need to show Carlos and Anna around before I add them to the watch rotation. While Martin was showing Carlos around the property for his first patrol, an old white F-250 lumbered down the road. Enough chrome trim had fallen off over the years to give the truck an awkward plainness of an aging Hollywood star without makeup. Martin met Charles at the end of the driveway, waving and pointing to the best parking spot. Hey, Charles! Martin had to shout over the noisy engine. It clattered like a furious six-cylinder sewing machine. Over there will be good! Hey, Martin, Charles rolled down his driver's window. What do you think, huh? Old Henry will work, right? 
Martin walked all the way around the tired crew cab. A homemade flatbed with stake sides had replaced the pickup bed years ago. They could set the gasifier up on the flatbed, but they would need to pipe the gas up to the engine. The long delivery tubes might help with the cooling. Not much rust for its age, Martin said. He hoped Charles wouldn't interpret his comment as a dig. Men tend to grow fond of their trucks. No, Charles beamed. We don't take him out on the salty roads, just bopping around the farm. Just put a new clutch in a few years ago. Uh, what's all this in the back? Martin asked. All that. We guessed it's some of the junk you might need. Charles hefted himself up into the bed. We had this little barrel out back, hydraulic fluid originally. We had this trash bin, too. Yeah, we used it for deer guts and stuff, so it kind of stinks. Uh, got some black pipe and duckwork scraps. Not sure if you could use this stuff or not. Well, we could. That big trash can is perfect. We couldn't find anything like that at the dump. Who throws away trash cans, right? Martin waved to Dustin as he came around the corner of the house. Hey, Dustin, come see what Charles brought. Big trash can. Maybe Judy can take over the watch for a little while so you and me can help him get this stuff unloaded. Uh, where is she? Uh, she's up on the meadow with the radio again. Well, call her in for a half hour or so. Have her watch out back while we're busy out front here. Dustin keyed the walkie-talkie. Judy didn't sound happy about the interruption of her news searching, but trudged down the hill. Martin showed Carlos and Lucas his brush pile and explained what he wanted to see for wood chunks and chips. It would take a while to amass enough chunks to fuel up a large gasifier. Tin Man would need fuel to run some of the power tools, too. Dad, said Dustin, we got lots of parts to work with and probably enough sheet metal screws, but we don't have enough JB Weld or anything like that for a project this size. Too many seams to seal. JB Weld? Charles asked. Why don't you just really weld the joints? Sure, some of it's galvanized, but you could grind that back. Well, I don't have a welder, Martin looked over his shoulder. But Nick does. I saw him using it to make a pipe rack on his truck. I'll go ask him about that. But first, I need to check on something. So, uh, how's the hominy? Martin asked. No idea, Dr. Science, quipped Margaret. It's your experiment, not mine. Well, that's no way for a lab assistant to talk. Where would Dr. Frankenstein be if Igor... Oh, whoa, it's kind of back to looking like mud again. You stirred it, right? Margaret nodded without looking up. Martin studied the bubbling mud as he stirred. The kernels didn't rattle or scrape. They were puffy and rounder. He could see what looked like soft beetlebacks in the mud. Hulls? He rinsed the kernels in a bowl of water. Rubbing the kernels between his hands created more beetlebacks that stuck to his fingers. More water. More rubbing. More rinsing. Eventually, the colander held puffy round kernels that resembled those printed on the can label. Pazole? asked Anna. Martin jumped. Oh, whoa! I didn't know you were back there. Sorry, Mr. Martin, said Lucas. Mama said she smelled something and wanted to come see. Martin stepped aside and tilted the colander so Anna could see better. She took a kernel and ate it slowly. She smiled broadly. She spoke to Lucas. Martin still didn't understand Spanish beyond the few obvious words and his one special, pointless word, palegro. Mama said you made pozole. It smelled like how her grandmother used to make it. She said it tastes like grandmother's, too. Really? Martin stared at his colander of puffy yellow kernels. 
Well, what did they do with them? After a bit of muted dialogue between Lucas and Anna, Lucas listed off more dish names than Martin's memory could hold. Okay, okay, I get the idea. Margaret, do you have any listings for hominy in your nutrition books? I think so. Why? Well, apparently we can make hominy, or pozole. I've got those two bags of corn down in the garage. We should figure that into your calculations. That's got to help. One cup of dry corn yields about a cup and three-quarters of hominy. That should be filling, if nothing else. Really? Let me try this hominy stuff. Margaret came around the counter. Hmm, interesting. Not much to it, but a bit of salt, maybe a touch of butter. Mama says you can mash up the pozole while it is soft and make dough for tortillas. Martin studied the wet hominy for a moment. So, Margaret, Martin said, how about if you only recalculate with one of the bags of corn? I might need the other one for something else. Martin made sure to clear his throat a few times as he walked up to the Oldham's home. No one liked being surprised. Nick looked relieved that it was only Martin at his door. Jess's worried look had become her new default. The kids were quieter than Martin could remember them being. Martin asked about Nick's welder. Once in the garage, Martin asked quietly, So, uh, how are things going? Oh, uh, pretty good. Nick avoided eye contact. Come on, Nick, really. How's your food holding out? Jess still looks worried. Well, truth is, just figures we've only got a week's worth of food left. She and I have been cutting back to leave more for the kids, but... Why didn't you say something? Martin whispered. Nick looked away to fuss with the welder. I figured I'd find some bigger game in the woods any day now. I saw some turkey tracks the other day, his shoulders sagged, but I haven't even been close to getting anything big like that. I shot a cardinal three days ago using Teddy's pellet gun. I breasted it out in the woods, told him it was a dove. I haven't seen anything else in the woods all week. Yeah, I haven't gotten anything in my snares for a week either, said Martin. He needed to get the conversation off of food. So, I was thinking that we might use your welder. It'll about max out what our generator will produce, but it should work. You want to borrow it? Well, no, I don't know how to weld. I was thinking that if you were to help us make this bigger gasifier, you know, be our official welder, that you should get, like, paid for the work. What? Well, not money, per se. I mean, I don't have buckets of money, and what would you do with it anyhow? But I do have some corn. We just figured out how to make hominy out of feed corn. You've got wood ashes. You could make it, too. Hominy isn't exciting, but it is food. What do you think? Nick stared into the middle distance. How do we figure wages out of corn? Martin shrugged. Uh, what if we just start with a day's work equaling enough corn to feed your family for a day? Martin had imagined saving up all the welding to do in one session, to conserve wood fuel and tin man. But that wouldn't help out Nick and Jess very much. Instead, Martin figured to have Nick on hand for several days doing a bit of welding each day and calling it a full day of work. Nick sat up straight and smiled slightly. Cool. I'll be bringing home the bacon. Or corn. Again, you got a deal. 
Martin was gambling that Tyler and Charles's plan to become trucking entrepreneurs would actually pay off, that his quarter share of their enterprise would amount to anything. If it didn't, he was bargaining away half of his newfound food source. Hey, Lance, called Martin. Come on over. He had to raise his voice to be heard over Tin Man, the generator, and Nick's welder. I can see you're busy, said Lance. But I got some news on that other odd gun that you found. He held the cardboard box in his arms. No, that's okay. I'm mostly just watching. Martin pointed to the next seam waiting to be welded. Nick nodded. Lance and Martin walked farther from the generator. Lance set the box on a half-consumed pallet of firewood. So, pretty weird finding two of those old guns, eh? Martin said. I remember. I said they ain't old. Lance wagged his finger. Just an old design. They're both pretty new. I left this one disassembled for show and tell. Custom handmade things, Martin guessed. I'd have guessed that too, based on the first one, but look in here. Lance held the bolt upside down. See those machine marks? That little ridge there? Well, I would have guessed that it was hand machined and the maker just didn't get his second pass quite lined up with his first but that first gun had exactly the same little ridge. And look in here. Lance held up the frame. See these wavy lines? That first gun had them too. They're chatter from side cutting. Travel too fast, or too few flutes. Meaning what? Martin was more familiar with working in wood, not machining metal. That these two were C&C machined, that whoever wrote the program didn't clean it up. Machinists tend to be perfectionists, you know, this was more of a bean counter project. All those chatter marks? That's a bean counter sign, too. Less expensive two-flute cutter, running faster than it should be. Meaning that they were supposed to be cheap? Martin wondered out loud. That's my guess, said Lance with a nod. And probably not worried about long-term reliability. Yeah, the bolt rails fit kind of loose. That'll cause trouble down the line. And that ain't all, Lance dug in the box. That little box of rounds you gave me, really odd. First off, they're close to being a 41 JMP, but not quite. See that little shoulder? I'll bet even a real 41 JMP wouldn't sit in there right. Hmm. Martin held one of the little white boxes close to his eyes. This little box was designed to hold only five of these odd 41 caliber rounds. Who produces five round boxes? Ah, oh, yeah, and I took one of them rounds apart. Lance pulled out an envelope. Cast lead bullet, but even though it's a magnum case, the powder load was light. So these things look all killa bad, but don't have much bite? Martin asked. Lance could only shrug. I don't get it. Maybe the thugs found somebody's inventory of a bad product that didn't sell. Tyler walked up, interrupting their theorizing. Hey, guys. I'm going around the area telling guys that there's a meeting at two o'clock up at Gene Merdot's place. You're supposed to come. Me? Martin asked. All of you, said Tyler. I guess we're organizing a neighborhood watch thing. All able-bodied men around Stockman Hill are supposed to come. You're also supposed to bring your preferred long gun with you and whatever you've got for a two-way radio. I'm off to get Charles. Don't forget, two o'clock, Merdot's house, up on the top of the hill. Martin and Dustin took seats in the back row of an eclectic mix of chairs in Jean's living room. 
Tyler and Charles were up front. Lance sat at the end of one of the curved rows. Nick was there, as was Mickey Baldwin. Lyle Talbot sat up front, along with three other men that Martin didn't recognize. "'Thanks for coming, everyone,' said Jean. "'Chief Berg wants people to organize defense groups in case trouble comes looking. You boys had quite a run-in with some rascals up in Manchester. Could be they'll come looking to even the score.' Martin thought it was unlikely that the thugs would come all the way out to Cheshire. How would they know where the convoy of trailers was going? Nonetheless, a local defense group would be good for all sorts of possible troubles. And speaking of troubles, I've got some news to pass along from Walter before we get started, Gene said. He read from notes that he had taken. You all probably heard about that plane with food aid crashing at the Manchester airport. Well, turns out it wasn't a crash. Apparently it landed okay in Manchester, but lots of people heard that it was coming, too. Thousands rushed out onto the runway. I guess no one wanted to miss out on a share. Two people were killed when the jet's wheels ran over them. They stormed the plane and somehow it caught fire, burned to the ground right there in the middle of the runway. Walter also told about a cargo ship of aid coming from Georgia. The White House said it was aiding criminals and ordered sanctions. Before it could get to Portsmouth, a Coast Guard cutter out of Boston intercepted it. The point is, it doesn't look like any help will be coming from anywhere else, said Jean. People desperate enough to mob a jet and set it on fire are still around here. So, Chief's plan, have us organize into some neighborhood defense groups in case trouble comes looking for us. He's picked out a few of us to be company commanders. Companies, scoffed Lyle. We don't even make up a platoon, let alone a company. We can't get too hung up on army definitions, said Jean. We are what we are. If it helps, think of us more like a fire company. Anyhow, I know company commander sounds all highfalutin, but the fact is we got picked because we have some good radios and we live on hilltops where we can act as local communication hubs. So I'm the hub for Stockman Hill area. Did you all bring your radios? Everyone held up something. Good. The basic deal is that we'll have a common channel that all of you'll monitor. Even with your little FRS radios, you should be able to pick up my base station. We'll test that later. Next item of business is figuring out some patrols. Lyle here has the most recent military experience. His last tour was training Afghans. So, I've tapped him to head up the tactical stuff. Lyle? Lyle stood and faced the group. Let's start with what you have for weapons. Everyone stand up and present arms. Tyler and Charles stood up in crisp military style. Martin tried to copy them, but he was pretty sure he was doing it wrong. Dustin tried too, but he was never satisfied with how his hands held the shotgun. Everyone else looked casual. Lyle walked along the line of standing men, studying the various guns. The more he assessed the collection, the more disappointed he looked. Ah, oh, man, this is about as bad as it gets, Lyle turned to Jean. We've got one of almost every caliber, and not a single AR or AK in the bunch, besides mine. We can't even put together an effective fire line with this flea market collection. Martin thought Lyle was expecting too much from townsfolk. Maybe it would have been handy if everybody had ARs and boxes of 5.56, but a volley of 30-30, 270, 308, or 12-gauge, or whatever, could cause plenty of damage, too. 
"'We'll have to work with it,' said Jean. "'I'll bet with some training,' Lyle interrupted. "'Training? There's no way to train these guys. "'They're old, overweight, or soft. "'They wouldn't last ten minutes in basic.' Martin was losing his patience with Lyle. For some people, things are always impossible if they aren't already perfect. "'There's no way to schedule patrols with this bunch,' said Lyle. "'I'd be better off running patrols on my own. "'I'll bet none of these guys even know how to—' "'Bah!' snapped Martin. He backed off his tone. "'If they were going to be a team, they had to start getting along. "'It can't be that bad.' Well, sure, we're not army rangers back from two tours, but we're all we've got. You trained Afghans. We're your new Afghans. We'll never be rangers, but do the best you can. Lyle was clearly not happy with Martin contradicting him. I'll bet half of you couldn't survive even a one-mile hike with a full rook. Martin had run across such professional snobbery before. It was the same irritating elitism that made doctors assume that no one else could take an aspirin without consulting a medical professional, or plumbers assume that no one knew how to use a wrench but a certified professional. As much as Martin wanted to get snarky with Lyle, he knew that diplomacy was required. Of course, none of us will ever be in shape like you or match your skills or training. We're just homeowners who had desk jobs. We know that. Sure, if a platoon of Russian paratroopers attacked us, we'd be doomed. And maybe right now, even a ragtag band of raider thugs from Indian Lakes could probably wipe us out, too. Just do what you can to improve our odds. I might not have been a ranger, Charles grumbled with sarcasm, but Bosnia was no spring break. I can't run or carry a load, said Lance, but I can still shoot. Or, or man a radio, I've probably repaired more guns than you've ever seen. And sure, I'm kind of overweight, said a man Martin didn't recognize. But I walked two miles a day, and I, I carried a deer a mile out of the woods last season. Others in the group nodded. They knew they were not military professionals, but they were willing to do what they could. They were defending their homes and families. A vested interest is a motivator. After establishing some common radio channels, the group gathered around a dining room table with a hand-drawn map of their area. Red squares marked their houses. A star marked Jean's house. This is the area the Stockman Hill Company covers, Jean traced his finger along a dotted line. We adjoined the Wilson Hill group over here, Center Group, the Pond Farm back here. Beyond them is Bell Hill, South Farms, East End, and North Forks. Our area goes east to the Sanford Line. These here are the three roads into the Stockman Hill Zone. The road in from Sanford is our loose thread. We're first in line on that one. Lyle stepped up to the table. You'll all be responsible for a section of perimeter near your houses. Martin noticed the thin red dotted line for his house extended from the swamp between his house and Nick's, out beyond the gravel pit and near Walden Road. It was a bigger area to cover than they had been. He imagined he might have to send two-man patrols out that far. Would he send the women out there? Perhaps as a pair, a man and a woman, for daylight sweeps. But how to handle night watches that far out, that seemed like a tough problem. Even so, continued Lyle, their sections here, here, and over here are beyond our occupied houses— We'll have to take turns running patrols in these uncovered areas. 
Write your names on this pad here. I'll work up a rotation, figuring on two-man patrols. Lyle told everyone to come back the next day for some drills and practice doing two-man patrols. As the men filtered out of Jean's house, they seemed somber. Even though it was their home area, they would all be venturing farther from home than they had been. Tyler and Charles peeled away toward their house, promising to come by Martin's later to resume work on the truck. Nick headed down the hill. Martin and Dustin waved to Mickey as the two of them crossed the meadow. Martin had much on his mind. He and Dustin couldn't cover all the patrols that would be required. Carlos and Anna needed to be added to the rotation. "'Mrs. Simmons said to tell you that she went to the dairy,' said Judy. "'She said she'd be back before dark.' "'Thanks, Judy,' said Martin. "'Would you get Mrs. Perez and take her with you on your watch? "'We'll need to be covering a bit wider area nowadays. "'I don't want anyone out of sight of the house alone.' Judy looked concerned at the change, but nodded and walked back up to the house. "'And make sure to take one of the walkie-talkies,' called Martin. "'Dustin, how about you get the twenty-two out and see how Carlos is with some target practice? We need to add him to the wider patrol roster. Better get him up to speed. I'm going to get some parts ready for Nick to weld when he comes over later.' Martin surveyed the partially assembled gasifier. It seemed a daunting task to make that Rube Goldberg collection of scraps actually power an F-250. He decided not to let the work ahead intimidate him. Instead, he would focus on bending up a collection of brackets which would support the vortex filter and the cooling tubes. "'Hello, Mr. Simmons,' called a voice. It was Eric. Martin decided to look too busy to talk. "'We just got done having a meeting over at the Bell Hill Company.' Eric said. My dad was named Company Commander. Pride was obvious in his voice. Martin let the conversation die, hoping that Eric would go away. Say, uh, Eric fished around, would uh, Susan be doing anything now? Yes, she's busy. Oh, uh, well, I was just on my way to uh, do something for my dad and Thought I might stop by and say hi. Martin continued to let the conversation die. He was trying not to get angry, but it seemed to take a great deal of effort to suppress. Susan was saying, uh, on the way up to Canterbury, how her house burned down in Boston and you offered to give her a room. He waited for Martin to reply, but none came. So she's not like a relative or an old friend or anything? Martin didn't look up. She was saying how your house is kind of crowded, so I was thinking maybe she could stay at our house. There's an empty room right next to mine. A fox volunteering to mind the chickens, Martin thought. He could feel the lava welling up beneath the cone, but kept his peace. Eric, taking Martin's silence as affirmation, began to relax. Sure would be nice to have her around, you know. She's quite a looker. Really nice, too. Yeah, I could tell she likes me. Yeah, we really hit it off. I've got a way with women, you know. <laughs> In college, I scored with half the girls in Alpha Phi. Uh, they had a thing for me, I guess. Martin tried to ignore Eric, but it wasn't working. Lava was rising. The metal angle stock at his side started to look like a suitable truncheon. 
They say it's going to be a cold winter, Eric continued. Bet I could get her hot enough to heat the whole house, he chuckled. <laughs> Martin stood up quickly, with a two-foot section of metal clenched in his fist. She is not here, he growled. You had better move along. His laser vision still wasn't working, but a steel bar to the side of the head, that would suffice. Huh? Oh, hey, hey, man, what's wrong? Eric's eyes caught the way Martin held the steel. I just wanted to say hi to Susan, is all. Martin's head swirled with things he might say in reply, that Eric should never talk that way about any woman, or that he should never talk that way about Susan, or that he should stop being so full of himself. All of them seemed like floodgates that would be impossible to close. Susan is not available. Martin intended that in both the immediate sense and the long term. He realized that he still had to work with Arthur and the Bell Hill Company at some point, so he couldn't afford to burn any bridges. You should be moving along. Oh, um, okay. Eric backed away cautiously. Well, uh, tell Susan I stop by. Martin stood motionless. He had no intention of passing along Eric's messages. Uh, guess I'll be going, Eric said. Martin watched Eric walk up the road until he disappeared behind the hemlocks. The thought of Susan trapped in the emulary house, prey for a slimy predator, finally pushed the lava to the surface. Martin turned and beat that bar of steel against a concrete block, over and over. It clanged and rang like a blacksmith shop. He knew his tantrum was a futile gesture. He couldn't protect Susan from every creep out there. He beat on the block over that frustration, too. Martin was angry at himself, too. He was married to Margaret and had no valid reason to feel so protective over Susan. He beat on that block to vent that anger, too. Martin stopped when the block broke. The bar was bent into a question mark. His palm was cut and bleeding, but he didn't care. The exhaustion actually felt good. Martin sat on an inverted paint can, trying to focus his mind on constructive matters. He carefully bent straps of metal into brackets to match his wooden template. He was lining up the next wave of things for Nick to weld. Susan stepped around the back of the truck. She stood there for a minute, expecting Martin to look up, or in some way acknowledge her arrival. He noticed her shadow, but kept his focus on the metal that he was carefully bending. He hoped she would move on when she saw how busy he was. He was not yet calmed down, so thought it best not to talk. Susan cleared her throat. <clears throat> I heard you working down here. She wasn't going away. Martin looked up, pretending to be startled. Oh, um, hey, uh, didn't see you there. Uh, no time to talk now, sorry. He stood up quickly, sending the metal brackets clanging to the pavement. Gotta go uh, check my snares now. He took a stride to get past her. She stood in his way. No, you don't. You just checked them earlier. Oh, uh, I meant to say that I had to take some bread out for Andy. He's depending on me to... He tried to step around her. She shifted sideways to block his path. You did that earlier, too. Susan pulled the wooden bench around so that it trapped Martin between the truck and the partially assembled gasifier structures. She sat in the middle of the bench. I don't think so. Yes, you did, Martin. 
You've been avoiding me ever since that trip to get the cows. No, I haven't. I've just been busy. You've been making yourself busy. Look, if I did something to make you angry at me, I want you to at least tell me what I did. You didn't do anything. You've always been... I'm not angry at you. Don't be silly. Then why can't you look me in the eye? That doesn't mean anything. I just don't think it... Martin began to pace back and forth, like a tiger in a cage. Then why won't you look me in the eye and tell me what I did? Because you'll do that look thing, he blurted, waving an accusing finger over his shoulder. What look thing? Martin's chuckle was slightly manic. Oh, yeah, <laughs> what look thing? Your eyes will get that sad, puzzled look, and it's totally not fair. At least kryptonite was a mineral you could put in a lead box, but that look... Lead box? What are you talking about? Okay, never mind. Fine. Don't look at me. But just tell me why you're angry at me. Ah, oh, it's not you. He paced faster. The cage was getting smaller. If you're not angry with me, then why have you been avoiding me? Martin threw his arms up in frustration. It's Eric, okay? I'm mad at Eric. There, fine. I said it. It's not you. Eric? What did he do? Martin laughed with a little more manic tone. Oh, ho, ho, what wouldn't he do? He stopped by here a little while ago. He was asking for you. He did? Yes, and I told him you were unavailable, and he just had to move on. Martin paced with fists clenched at his side. He probably thought I was some sort of locker room pal of his or something, the way he said. Martin bit his lip. Said what? Martin waved his arms as if to fend off an invisible bee. Uh, never mind. He, he should never talk like that about you. Oh, and it wasn't like he just made one stupid comment, either, if that's what you're thinking. Oh, 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 no. Up at the farm at Canterbury, he didn't think I noticed, but I did. I saw the way he looked at you with that wolfish, devouring sort of look. Oh, that made me angry. But then, faking a stumble so he could paw you, like he didn't think anyone would see how obvious he was? Martin paced faster. So you've been angry at Eric all this time? Yes. Uh, no. Well, sort of. Well, not just him. I've been angry at myself, too. Being angry at Eric for being a lecherous jerk is just not my place. You're a perfectly capable woman with your own life to tend to. It's not my job to beat lecherous jerks into a bloody pulp. Martin studied his fists as if they held an invisible victim. It's not my job. It's your life. I have no place meddling in your life. Yet... Here in my fevered little brain, that's exactly what I keep doing, and I'm angry at myself for it. At that Mark character, he spun around and pointed at her. If I ever meet him, I think I just have to take him down and beat him senseless for... Mark? Yes, and he'll have every stitch of it coming, too. He had no right to treat you that way. You've still been thinking about that? He took advantage of you, and that makes me furious, too. I mean, I know there are idiot jerk-faced guys out there, but why do they always have to be rotten to the nice girls, huh? It's just not right. He shook his fist at the air. Any guy lucky enough to have a wonderful woman like you as a girlfriend should never behave like that. He should take care of you, help you to grow, protect you, not go around... And why are you smiling? You should be screaming at me for being a meddlesome jerk for trying to interfere with your life. Susan sat very still hands clasped together in her lap, looking him in the eye. See? Just like I told you, 
Martin pointed at her with both hands. You're doing it right now. You've got that look. I'm raving like a madman about things that are absolutely none of my business. And instead of you telling me to butt out, you're smiling at me with that look. Why in blazes are you smiling? He demanded. Because of why you're so angry, she said. Martin froze. His rage imploded. The truth he had been running from caught him and mugged him. He cared for Susan more deeply than a man who is determined to be faithfully married should. Denial, however, has an inertia of its own. He turned away, waving off a whole swarm of invisible bees. No, 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 no. It's not that. I'm angry because guys shouldn't be such selfish jerks. I'm angry because Eric is one of those jerks, and I don't want to see him turn out to be another Mark. I'm angry that that Mark ever existed at all, and because I... Susan's smile widened. A small tear began to roll down her cheek. I, I shouldn't be. I have no business thinking. He stopped pacing. Suddenly feeling weak, he collapsed onto the bench like a pile of dumped laundry. His head felt like it weighed fifty pounds. He buried his face in his hands. Oh, God, he moaned. Susan sniffed and wiped her cheek. I don't mind. Really, I don't. Martin continued to moan into his hands. Oh, this is bad. I don't think so, she said quietly. I've never been so happy. But I can't make you happy, don't you see? I can't do anything for you. You already have, Susan whispered close. Martin's life isn't getting any less complicated, now is it? If you want to see what sorts of things are posted for my Siege Club members, it's at buymeacoffee.com slash Check it out. See what you think.